everyone and welcome to another episode of Murder Most Gruesome. My name's Andrea. And I'm Yvonne. And today we're going to do an episode and it's a particularly nasty one. So it's the tale of the three-way killer. Now, when we say three-way killer, there are a couple of serial killers with this name. And this is due to them finding their victims on the freeway. Yeah. So At least freeway. finding the victims on the freeway, on motorway, we would say in England. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's not, it's not something we... In, in England call um, a freeway, we call it the motorway. Yeah. So this is William Bonin's story. And to be fair, he has a, a very traumatic childhood. And it's the story of him and his childhood and how that leads him into being a serial killer. Now we have a trigger warning today, people. And it's because this podcast contains descriptions of child abuse, rape and murder. So if that's not your thing, maybe... Catches yeah, on the next it's, it's not a nice one. It's, there's quite a bit of graphic details. It really is. It's one of the... To say he's not as well-known as maybe some of the other serial killers who are as, as particularly nasty as him, I think who were... You know, I think he's up there. Mm-hmm. But it's, he's not as... He's not as well-known, I don't think. His name isn't, like, up there, like, really, like, Ted Bundy or the Zodiac. No, um, I'd fair, I've not heard of him before. No, no, I, I'd, I'd... No, I don't think I had really. I'd, I think I'd, I had, like, read articles which mentioned him, but not nothing that went into great depth. I wouldn't have been able to tell you about his crimes or what he was like. I think he deserves to be up there because he is, he is particularly brutal and, and nasty. Killed a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. That they actually knew and found out about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm going to start the story with a quote from William Bonin that is his last words as he lays strapped to the gurney, spoiler alert. And he says, that I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand, that I feel it sends the wrong message to the youth of the country. Young people act as they see other people acting, instead of as people tell themselves to act. And I would suggest that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, that they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. So, as I said, these are the last words of William Bonin, as said to Warden Art Calderon, as he lay um, strangely calm strapped on the gurney moments before being executed by lethal injection. Now, previous to this, he'd dined on his last meal of two large pepperoni and sausage pizzas, three pints of coffee ice cream, and three six-packs of regular Coca-Cola. That's a lot. It is a lot. God. It'll take me two yeah. days to it's consume so that. that. <laughs> Um, so, in a final interview, 24 hours before a scheduled execution, Bonin claimed that he had made peace with the fact that he was about to die. And his only regret in his life was that he had not pursued his teenage dream of becoming a fe- professional bowler. Mm-hmm. Now, wow. <laughs> that's something they have in America. It's not really a, a big thing in England. Does it mean like softball? No. Um, Baseball. What? Oh, would... oh, do you mean cricket? I think they mean like when you're like down a temping bowl. Oh, okay, yeah. no, maybe I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, my mind went in a different direction on that one. Yeah, unsurprisingly, he was he expressed his disappointment and start again. <laughs> unsurprisingly, Bonin expressed his disappointment as well as his disagreement with the state's decision to execute him, saying, A lot of people believe I should die for what I have done. I don't agree, I have no anger towards anybody, but that doesn't mean I don't think the death penalty is wrong. Now, again, unsurprisingly, he denied responsibility for his actions in his interview stating, I can say that I feel that these people believe I am guilty and that they feel when I am executed that they will put closure to it, but that is not the case and they're not going to find that out. He claimed that he was not the same person he was during his spree of crimes. Oh, that old chestnut. They roll that one out, don't they? Yeah. I'm a changed person. Yeah. And but, however, he did say that he would not be able to live a normal life outside of prison as a result, insisting that he had no control over his actions. Bonin claimed that his urge to kill was too strong to resist, before expressing his hope that the Lord will understand me and know that I could not help what I did. 
Yeah, and that's and we'll go into his childhood and and we're not excusing this. We're not saying that because he had a bad childhood that yes, he did these crimes and you know, you shouldn't we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have punished him. We're not saying that, but when you read about his childhood, I don't think he stood a chance. I really don't. It was, it was very brutal. It, it was if somebody had actually thought, I'm going to bring up a serial killer and how should I do it? This is the way to do it. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's like Ivan said, it was, you wouldn't, oh God, it, the thought of a child going through what he went through. Yeah. Just and we'll go in. We'll we'll, we'll talk through that because that's something you know we do go into depth on in this podcast. So at six p.m. on the day he was executed, Bonin was transferred from his cell to a death watch cell, where he ordered and ate his last meal. And during these final hours, he spent them in the company of five people. So these included his attorney, a chaplain and a prospective biographer. These visitors would later comment on how he was resigned to his fate, um, with his own attorney going on to say he had not detected any remorse in his client. So that's his own attorney saying he didn't. there was no remorse there. At 11.45pm, Bonin was escorted by guards from his holding cell into the execution chamber. So Bonin was executed by lethal injection inside the gas chamber at San Quentin Prison um, on 23rd of February 1996. And he was actually the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the history of California. And he was pronounced dead at 12.13am. At the age of 49, none of his relatives attended, although families of the victims did attend, who cried and embraced each other when it was officially confirmed that he was dead. Would you do that? Would you go yeah. to... If he was his I mother? Was, no, not his mother, I thought you were going to say. Oh, no, I would. Would I go if I was, like, if it was my family that he murdered? Oh, I definitely I'd would, yeah. I would, yes, but it, it's a hard one if your child... If he was your child. Last chance to see him. The last... In a way... Who would want to go and see their own child being put to death? And at the end of the day, we are supposed to be... When you put people to death, it's an awful thing, but you're supposed to be doing it with the... Being professional, I suppose, and being the kindest you can be. Would would it be kind for him to see a face that somebody knew and loved in his last moments, to know that somebody was there? But as we've said, and we'll find out in more detail, mum didn't really care. No. So no. And then you could argue about... that the people who murdered didn't have the people they loved yeah. in the final moments. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I would agree with that, that why should he have peace and have somebody there and have okay. a nice death when, when so many of his victims didn't? Now, according to the people that were there, there were no compl- complications with the... Um, carrying out the death sentence and Bonin appeared to be heavily sedated. Governor Pete Wilson who had rejected a submitted appeal for clemency from Bonin's attorneys three days prior to his execution referred to Bonin as the poster boy for capital punishment before adding the California's method of execution ensured that his death was infinitely more pleasant than yeah. those endured by his victims. So who was William Bonin? So he was born on the 8th of January 1947 in Connecticut and was dubbed the freeway killer. He was a serial killer and twice paroled sex offender. Wow. Yep. So during his crime span, he raped, tortured and murdered a minimum of 21 young men and boys between May 1979 and June 1980. That is a lot in, that is just over a year, 21. Yes, yeah. Almost two a month. Yeah, you'd say. Mm. So on at least 12 occasions, sorry, on at least 12 occasions, Bonin was assisted by one of four accomplices, although he was actually being suspected of committing a further 15 murders, and was described by the prosecutor as his first trial, at his first trial, as the most arch-evil person who ever existed. His nickname, the Freeway Killer, was earned due to the fact that the majority of his victims 
bodies were discovered alongside numerous freeways in Southern California. And he shares this name with two unrelated serial killers active in and around the same region in the 1970s. Now, wouldn't you just avoid those roads? Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure loads of people couldn't. But how horrific. Can you imagine three serial killers acting around the same time? Yeah. On the same stretch of road. And I don't think we have any kind of like understanding of how comprehension big, of how big yeah. and vast these roads are. Yeah, I don't think we can in England. Obviously, we have motorways, and obviously, some of those motorways go through. I mean, they go through the Mars, the M62 goes to the Mars, and yeah, there's, there's hills and, and just grass on either side, and that part's pretty lonely, but it, those are few and far between. There's, a lot of them go through built-up cities. Yeah, and you never, you rarely drive on a motorway, no matter what time of night or day it is, because we've taken, we've driven through the night, haven't we? We have, kind of like to, to, to go to places, holidays. yeah. Um, and there's always someone else around. It's not you can. Yeah, there's always other cars on. It, it, it would, you would never just be driving down for miles and miles and miles and never see anyone. No. But William Bonin had an like we said before, he had an absolutely awful childhood. It's terrible. And I'm not saying that excuses anything, which no. absolutely doesn't. But I do feel sorry for the child he was. I really do. William Bonin had an absolutely awful childhood and i'm not saying it excuses anything which he absolutely doesn't but i do feel really sorry for the child he was he was the middle son of robert bonin senior and alice alice coat yeah c-o-t-e coat i'm I, I bet i'm pronouncing that wrong bonin's parents were both alcoholics his father was a veteran of world war ii frequently hit his wife and children his mother suffered from severe mood swings and spent, spent lots of time at bingo parlours, leaving her sons at home alone. She has been reported as being a domineering and emasculating presence in Bonin's early life. Father was a gambling addict and the amount his loss meant that his mother had to get a job at a local thread mill. In January 1950, his father actually gambled their home away in Andover, Connecticut after losing at a high-stakes poker game and they had to move in with his maternal grandmother. So can you imagine? I mean, both of them are gamblers, really, because bingo's gambling. I like a bit of bingo myself, but, you know, bingo's gambling, his dad's gambling. Can you imagine coming home and telling you, I mean, when you've got kids... Gambling your house. I've never, honestly, it wouldn't be my husband much longer. No. Although their life was chaotic, they were brought up active Catholics and attended St Mary's Catholic School. So teachers were always complaining about Bonin's aggressive behaviour towards other students playing uh, and playing truant. He rode his bike into a group of girls because of this was sent to juvenile detention briefly. And when he returned home, he was ruder and more aggressive towards his parents as usual. And it's a bit like that when they go to prison or they go somewhere, they almost, it's a training school for them then. So he's mixing with other kids that are as bad or worse than him and he picks up their habits. Yeah. Do you mean like he rode his like pushback? Yeah. Just rode into him. But obviously like it's starting early, this stuff, isn't it? It's, you know, truanting. It, problems at school, being rude, yeah. having to go to juvenile detention. It, it's telling a story already. He and his older brother, Robert Jr., were enrolled at the Franco-American Catholic Convent School in Low- Lowell, 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 Massachusetts. Now, the school had a reputation of harsh discipline for even the smallest infractions, with full-blown assaults being meted out for the more extreme cases. Now, Bonin complained in later life that he was forced to repeatedly punch offence as a punishment. And surprisingly, records from the time show that he actually behaved quite well there. Bonin recollected later in life being physically bullied by some children at the convent. And during one of these episodes, his bullying episodes, a 13-year-old boy and another orphan defended him. and, And I think this happened around 1955. Now, according to him, this this 13-year-old boy then took him into the toilets um, where Bonin agreed to this boy's sexual advances towards him on the condition that the other boy had his hands bound with a towel. So the, the boy that was assaulting him um, said, well, I'll bind my hands and that'll make you know, so that'll make you safe. 
feel safer. Yeah, I'll do that. But very quickly into the encounter, the boy um, got out of his restraints, got out of the restraints and performed oral sex on Bonin before sexually assaulting him. Dr Pincus said that it, it is inconceivable that he was not sexually abused and forcibly restrained by adult abusers before the incident. He wrote that in a report to Bonin's lawyers and years later Bonin would tie up most of his victims before killing them. Now during the t his time, this time, his parents never visited him and he was forbidden to interact with his brother. He then became convinced his parents had actually died. So he was, was, was away. Oh, yeah, he was away in this school. Um, he, you know, his parents never visited him. And I think he then, I don't know, quite know why he became convinced his parents had died. He remained at the convent until May 31st, 1955, and then returned to his parents, living at a house owned by uh, Bonin's maternal grandfather in Mansfield's Mansfield, Connecticut. In Mansfield, he attended Annie Vinton Elementary School with his younger brother, Paul. Now, his behaviour problems continued, and at this point, he started to develop sexual feelings for some of his classmates and the male teachers there. He started to isolate himself, and he was more and more struggling to relate to children of his own age. Now, interviewed later, his neighbours at the time tell how his parents were hardly ever there, and spent absolutely no quality time with them and any of the kids. And one neighbour used to give them food and clean clothes as they were always dirty and hungry. I think that's awful. Yeah. They really just, they just, didn't drive, they just, just drag themselves up, really. Yeah. Now, throughout their childhood, he and his brothers were often placed with their maternal grandfather. Now, he had sexually abused their mother throughout her childhood and even tried to continue this when she was an adult. And she suspected him of abusing her sons, which is frankly unbelievable to me that you would leave your children with a man you knew by experience was yeah. a paedophile. Um, the parents also left the oldest brother in charge of Bonin, and the so is the oldest brother in charge of the two younger ones. You know, having been beaten and abused regularly, they then beat and bullied his younger siblings. So he was passing on the abuse, passing the abuse on, really. No adult supervision. He was free to be out on the streets. Um, he was stealing. And by 1957, was again placed in a juvenile detention centre for his crimes. During his time there, he was abused by an adult counsellor. When he was eventually released from there, he started to abuse his younger brother. Until six months later, when his brother told his mother, who made him sleep in a bedroom on his own. And when he was around 12, he attempted incest with an older family cousin. So really, like we were saying, there's a lot of markers there. He's been, you know, already he's showing deviant behaviour. Yeah. Um, and also he's been abused. You know, the parents weren't there. God knows what was happening. Oh, God. I mean, they could have been, well, they were doing yeah. anything. And, and people were doing anything to them. Now, entering adolescence, he attended Coventry High School, 1959 to 1960, where, you know, he just bobbed along there. His father's gambling again meant that they were close to losing their home and his mother threw him out and got custody of their children. But they reconciled and decided to relocate to Torrance, California, as his father had actually got a well-paying job there. He attended, so in, in California, he attended North High School, where he was shunned by his peers and formed absolutely no friendships. He missed a lot of school. Um, it was suspended at some point. Now, around this point, he developed an obsessive interest in paedophilia, but kept these feelings understandably a secret. His emergent homosexuality caused frequent rows between him and his mother. He showed no interest in girls, but for some unknown reason, to please his mother, he dated a female classmate called Linda, but always felt uncomfortable with her. Mm -hmm. uh, he dropped out of high school altogether uh, finally in 1966 and spent his days trying to lure neighbourhood children to molest. Now, his mother threw him out, although the reason for this remains unknown, but I should imagine maybe she saw something or found something out. So reduced to borrowing money from his parents, he made the decision to join the United sorry, um, to join the United States Air Force in December 1966. 
he got engaged to Linda, which is, you know, he was encouraged by his mother to do this, who hoped that this might stop his own homosexuality. During his time in the military, he earned his GED, which is the equivalent to kind of, I suppose, our GCSEs, and served as a cook for four months in Alaska, where he was soon arrested for theft on October the 25th, 1967. Although the charges were dropped, because um, he was due to be deployed to Vietnam, so when he got to Vietnam, he was stationed in Phu Loi base camp yeah. and saw active duty in the 250th assault support helicopter unit as an aerial gunner, where he logged over 700 hours of both combat and patrol time. He later claimed that his wartime experience instilled negative and general distrust of his fellow humans. However, he risked his life on one occasion while while he was under enemy fire to save a wounded fellow airman. Now, for this, he received a medal in recognition of gallantry, among others. Um, while in Vietnam, he claimed to have engaged in allegedly consensual relations with four young girls and also a number of homosexual encounters. You know, they can't give consent. I'm not quite sure how, they, how old the girls were. It just says young girls. So they weren't able to give consent. In addition to seeing a 25-year-old female prostitute in Hong Kong confess to assaulting, um, by sexually assaulting by gunpoint, two other soldiers that he was in command of during the time of the Tet Offensive. Now, in all, he served two years in the Air Force before being honourably discharged on the 25th of October 1968 at the age of 21. When he had returned home, Linda, who had given birth to their son whilst he was away, had actually left him and married someone else. Now, while they were engaged, he had told Linda repeatedly, so while him and Linda had been engaged, he told her repeatedly that he had recurring nightmares which involved the rape and murder of a young woman. And I think I think actually was quite upset that Linda had left him. A month after he returned home, on the 26th of November, 1968, he, he approached 14-year-old Billy Jones in Arcadia, California, when out driving his mother's car. He offered to take him home, and Billy got scared in the car when Bonin kept asking if he was a homosexual. Billy tried to flee the car, but Bonin drove him into a closed shopping centre, handcuffed him, and raped him and knocked him unconscious. So he left Billy on a park bench, and Billy's mum called the police when he returned home and told her what had happened to him. Six days later, on the 26th of November 1986, at around 12am, Bonin picked up a hitchhiker who was 17-year-old John Treadwell from Torrance. During the journey, he started talking about homosexuality and then started speeding and produced a gun. He drove to a secluded area and raped Treadwell threatening him with his friends that would avenge him if he told the police. And during the assault, Treadwell was also hit repeatedly with a tire iron. Eight days later, on the 4th of December, 1968, so these are all really close together, 17-year-old yeah. Alan Pruitt made a report to Torrance Police Department that a man with medium-length hair and olive complexion had given him a ride and then driven off the highway. He'd handcuffed Pruitt in the car and had repeatedly asked the boy whether he knew about homosexuals and he handcuffed Pruitt and quote extensively sexually assaulted him in the car and during one of the conversations in the car he had repeatedly asked the boy whether he knew that there were homosexuals in the world. Five weeks later on January the 1st 1969 Bonin offered a ride to a 12 year old Lawrence Bretman in Hermosa Beach, California. Driving the ride, his behaviour, during the ride, his behaviour started to scare Lawrence and the boy started pleading with him to let, let him go. Bonin threatened him and parked near Hawthorne Boulevard and Palace Verdes North where he forced Lawrence to give him oral sex and then sexually assaulted him and eventually robbed him at gunpoint. He told him that he would kill him if he reported the incident to the police. Seven days after this, on the 12th of January 1969, he reportedly picked up a hitchhiker, Jesus Monge. Monge. As was his method, he began asking him about homosexuality. And then he offered Jesus $20 to give him oral sex. Jesus refused and tried to get out of the car. But Bonin punched him in the stomach and the chest and grabbed his genitals, squeezing them hard. He handcuffed Jesus and forced him to perform oral sex on him. Before finally sodomizing him, 
and he reported and reportedly threatened Jesus, telling him, I'll rip your nuts off if you don't cool it. Obviously, during this time, the police were working hard, trying to find the serial rapist, and had a description of Bonnie. On January the 28th, 1969, at 2.30am, an El Segundo policewoman confronted Bonin in his mother's car. In the car was a frightened 16-year-old boy called Timothy Wilson. Noticing Bonin's frantic state and his similarity to the description of the serial rapist they were looking for, she searched him and found handcuffs. During the arrest, Bonin repeatedly asked her to throw him in jail because, um, before sobbing and insisting that he was not responsible for his actions. He was subsequently indicted on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy and one count of oral sex. One count of child molestation against five individuals he abducted and assaulted and in the case of the boy he was found with attempted assault. In every instance Bonin had handcuffed or otherwise restrained his victim before forcibly sodomizing them or having oral copulation. Also other methods of torture including bludgeoning them about the head with a tire iron and he even choked one victim to near unconsciousness and grabbing and squeezing two victims' testicles. In March 1969, so he was examined by two psychiatrists, which both of them found him to be a sexual psychopath with little control over his impulses, and he had signs of depression and an inappropriate emotional response. At first he denied the childhood abuse, but went on to tell of being fondled at age eight, and he thought that he'd been molested on multiple occasions between nine and 12 years old. In May 1969, he told the probation officer his guilt in molesting male youths, but also claimed that he wanted to start a family, become a pilot when he was released from jail. He blamed Vietnam for his criminal behaviour, claiming he then struggled to seduce female partners since he returned. In his final evaluation, he was found to be seriously lacking insight and responsibility for crimes committed since his childhood. He pleaded guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced to um, to, to be like, sentenced in an Al yep. State Hospital in June 1969 as a mentally disordered sex offender, but was thought to be amenable to treatment. Arriving at the hospital on June 17th, 1969, he was given more psychiatric examinations and these showed that he possessed a higher than average IQ of 121 and displayed traits of manic depression, sexual sadism and antisocial, antisocial personality disorder. There was no significant brain anomalies that was found but he had extensive scars on his head and buttocks. Bonnie said that he had no memory of how he became to have these, but authorities believe they are likely to have been sustained in the Anglo-American orphanage. Due to the fact that he can't remember obtaining them, how he obtained them, um, this led experts to believe that Bonin had repressed memories of the most extreme parts of abuse during his childhood. So they believe that he had an unhealthy relationship with his domineering mum. And that he remained, however, he did remain emotionally dependent on her. Although she generally and nearly always expressed a low opinion of him, saying that her son was essentially a worth, as worthless as a human can be. During his time incarcerated in the hospital, Bonin attended and participated in experimental programs. It was considered by staff to be a non-violent, helpful and conscientious patient. But psychiatrists believed that he was saying what he thought that they wanted them to hear. And a bid and in a bid, sorry, to manipulate him them into releasing him early. One psychiatrist said he wanted to straighten himself out but didn't know how to go about it. In July the seventh, on July the seventh, nineteen seventy one, he was sent to a Californian medical centre after being declared unsuitable for further treatment due to repeated sexual engagements with inmates, two of whom were mentally challenged, and this led him to actually be beaten quite severely by other inmates on several occasions. He also alienated and irritated fellow patients, which has been... It's, it's, it's yeah, he's not liked by his peers, is he, at all? Not at all. At this new hospital, he had further psychiatric examinations, which dealt with hostility towards his father and older brother, further noting that his sexual behaviours were compulsive in response to stress. 
There he also raised money for the family of other prisoners, another prisoner, and applied for various treatment programs. He was eventually released from prison on the 11th of June 1974 after doctors declared that he was no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. Wow, I got that wrong. <laughs> he really did. After his release, he rented an apartment in Hollywood, intending to mix with the gay community there, but as with the rest of his relationships, or attempts to fit in with society, he had very little success because of his poor, basically his poor social skills, and he quickly moved in to his parents' house on Angle Street, Downey, California. He got a job as a bartender in Fountain Ballet, but didn't last and but didn't last very long. He then got a job as a lorry driver on Mont- um, a lorry driver at a Montebello delivery firm in December 1974. But he only lasted there three months because he was sacked for wrecking one of the lorries. <laughs> Sorry. He then decided to attend college for two semesters, during which time he began picking up hitchhikers for potential sexual encounters and began a serious relationship with a single mother. On the 8th of September 1975, he was out cruising for young boys and at around 7pm he came across 14-year-old David McVicker, who was hitchhiking in the city garden grove david accepted the offer of a lift to his parents house in huntington beach and very quickly into the journey he asked him whether he had been have it whether he had ever engaged in homosexuality or if he was a homosexual so obviously this alarmed david and he asked bonin to pull up and let him out now bonin just accelerated the vehicle and when david did try to get out of the car bonin produced a gun and drove to a deserted field he ordered David to undress and then physically assaulted him. Bonin then forcibly performed oral sex on David and raped him whilst garroting him with his own T-shirt and with a tire iron. On the verge of losing unconsciousness, David cried out, God help. And hearing this, Bonin immediately stopped and apologised and then carried on talking to him normally. He ended up masturbating into a rag and then drove David home and dropped him off. On the drive back, he stated, you know what, you're a right guy. I was going to kill you, but I do want to come back for you and use you again. As David left the car, he told him, we'll meet again. David was so upset, he just sat and cried for several hours and then called on a child abuse hotline. He then rang his mum, who contacted the police, in this case, the Garden Grove Police. Two months after these assaults, Bonin was arrested on October the 11th, 1975. During his police interview, he told police, next time there won't be any more witnesses. He was charged with rape and forcible oral rape of a minor and also attempted abduction of a 15-year-old boy two days after he assaulted David. The second victim had rejected Bonin's offer of $35 for sex and got out of his van. And then Bonin drove his van onto the pavement and tried to run the boy over. On the 31st of December 1975, he pled guilty to both charges and was sentenced to between 1 to 15 years imprisonment at the California's men's facility in San Luis Obispo. Psychiatric examinations of Bonin in 1977 showed that his sexual involvement with young boys related to his mother's micromanagement of his life. Oh, it's his mother's fault. <laughs> I know. And in March 1978, Bonin's father suffered a major stroke, presumably as a result of his long-standing alcoholism, and he was in hospital at a Long Beach Veterans Administration Hospital, where his mother worked as a vocational nurse. During this time in prison, he completed a maths course and vocational training as a machinist in order to secure employment employment and showed significant progress in individual therapy sessions. As a result of this, he was released from detention on the 11th of October, 1978. That's hardly the... No, um, once 15 years when he was like, well, it was 31st of December, 1975, and this is October, 1978. So um, three years, less than, just less than three years. And he was released with 18 months of supervised probation. Once again, he just told the doctors and the psychiatrists what they wanted to hear. And so he's spent just under, like Three I said, years. in prison for raping a child. On the 1st of November, he moved to an apartment complex at the Kingswood Village Complex in Downey. And this was located approximately one mile from his parents' house. 
So he's never far away from his mum and dad, really, is he? He's going back and forward, mm. living in the house. He became friendly with one of his neighbours, ex-band officer, 43-year-old Everett Fraser. Now, he soon became a regular at the parties Fraser held almost every night of the week for several months, where young men and drugs and alcohol were rife. Now, Fraser thought that Bonin was a respectful, polite and quite individual, and he frequently introduced him to his young male friends, and the two talked frequently about their love of sex with teenage boys. Around a month after he moved there, he started a relationship with a married mother um, and who had a criminal record for child cruelty, and she was called Mary. Sounds like a catch. Um, <laughs> whom he accompanied to Anaheim on Sundays so she could roller skate, with one of, uh, roller skate, which was one of her hobbies. They also went to church and bowling together. He often spent time with her children and uh, um, and they took them with them you know, when they went out and about. Now, Bonin's parole supervision stopped in 1979. And shortly after this, he and his brother Paul, who was working as a plumber at this point, relocated to the rural community of Silverado, California. And together, they ran a neighbourhood bar called the Alpine Inn. Now, the pub was constantly being complained about for noise complaints. Uh, he was also reported to have locked a 16-year-old runaway in one of the rooms, threatening him with burying him in the hills. And he did this at knife point. Because of his criminal convictions, he was unable to get a license for selling alcohol. The business wasn't a success and really didn't last long. He then bought a Ford van in July 1979 while he was still living in Silverado with his brother, whom he also worked for briefly in his plumbing business. During attending Fraser's parties, he got to know a 21-year-old porcelain factory worker, Books, who um, was an avid reader of horror fiction. He used to cosplay as fictional characters such as Darth Vader, and he was known locally as being a bit eccentric. Um, he decorated his apartment with novelty spiders, he had two coffins. One of these was used as a photo booth and another as a coffee table. He made love with his girlfriend um, named Pam Katy Razouk, who was a self-proclaimed witch. Um, he attended pagan religious festivals with and um, visited grave sites. Now, Butts was also convinced his apartment was haunted by ghosts and they, that he, and he'd been fired from his job as a magic, magic store clerk at Knott's Berry Farm, mainly down to his untidy appearance and his behaviour, which was getting increasingly strange and unpredictable. Now, he's an active bisexual. Um, he abused drugs and alcohol on a frequent basis, but should also perform public magic acts at schools and privately for small groups and children's parties. Um, he charged about $30 a show for this, which is quite... Quite an amount. Time, yeah. yeah, he was a drifter, he'd been in and out of jail, and in later court proceedings, prosecutors speculated that he developed a fascination with sadistic homosexual activity whilst in jail. Now, despite having an extensive criminal record for offences such as burglary, arson, claimed to have been both enamoured and also scared by Bonin, he said that Bonin held a hypnotic control over him. In contrast, Bonin held Butts in high regard because he was pop for his popularity and that he let him overpower him and described him as highly intelligent. Now, they both lived outwardly heterosexual lifestyles, but they soon became lovers, um, with Butts introducing him to the game Dungeons and Dragons. He held weekly game nights of this at his house. Butts also held murder mystery parties where 16 people searched for various murder artefacts around the city of Downey, like hairpins or ice picks. The subject of death and murder was a topic of frequent conversation between the two. And months later, Bonin suggested that they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker during one of these conversations. Now, Butts was open to, to this suggestion and he later freely admitted to taking great enjoyment in watching Bonin abuse and torture his victims in the back of the van whilst he was driving the vehicle. However, he then said he had participated in the murder because he was scared of Bonin. Well, whether Again, that's that an excuse, one. yeah. He had once secretly changed his address to get away from Bonin, and he had turned up there unannounced. And Miley was a literate tech 
who was an illiterate Texas native and a high school dropout with an IQ of 56, who supported himself with casual work, also participated in murders with Bonin. Now, he was raised in Lakewood and his mother had had a series uh, of alleged dysfunctional marriages and relationships and she'd severely neglected him. Miley saw Bonin as a type of father figure and he went with him to watch movies, buy clothes and, and food in return for sleeping with Bonin. Miley's mother wasn't happy with the arrangement, obviously, and when seeing psychologists... Uh, after he'd later been arrested for these murders, because these are people who helped Bonin murder some of the boys. Mm. Bonin told them that the relationship, his relationships with these men made him feel like he belonged in a way he had never felt in school or with anyone else. His As victims, he usually preyed on young male hitchhikers, um, schoolboys, male prostitutes. They were all aged between 12 to 19. And they were either white or Latino, they were slender, pale, long-haired, and he enticed them or forced them into his Ford Ecoline van, um, where he would overpower them and bound, bound them hand and foot with a combination of handcuffs, wire and cords. He'd then sexually assault them, uh, beat them around the face, the torso, head and genitals, and tortured them, uh, usually before strength, strangling them with their own t-shirts and a tire iron during and i think that we've said that before i think maybe did he make a garrote yeah. with a t-shirt and, and fight i think that's what that means during which time he left he let them drift in and out of consciousness however there was some that were stabbed or battered to death now one of his victims darren kendrick was forced to drink hydrochloric acid five victims had ice picks driven through their ears oh and mark shelton died from shock from being impaled. Now, during his confessions, one of Turney said, the escalating levels of violence was akin to a drug addict needing an ever greater dose of drugs to attain a satisfactory level of euphoria. Now, Bonin himself later likened his homicidal urges to that of an addiction, emphasising turneologists who could barely wait for the sun to set before uh, to begin cruising, and he felt an intense feeling of excitement as he drove around looking for potential victims. Now, he didn't go out cruising on a Sunday, as this was his special day to spend with his girlfriend. He would usually go out cruising on Fridays and Saturdays, and he later described to psychologist how much enjoyment he got out of hearing his victims scream. He actually made a point of sodomising his victims, and this is really grim, in an upright position and deliberately using no lubricant, which meant that they would rectally tear and bleed. Oh now, to stop his victims escaping, like had happened on a previous earlier occasion, um, he removed all the inside handles, apart from the ones on the driver's side. Um, to enable him to tie his victims up quickly, he'd stowed restraints around the van in ease to each places, uh, like ligatures, knives, pliers, wire coat hangers, and other things. Now, when he had finished assaulting them, he killed them inside of the van and then discarded them, just like they were rubbish, along or nearby various freeways in Southern California, hence the moniker uh, the highway killer, the freeway killer. To try and to make it difficult for law enforcement to connect his crimes, he'd often drive to various counties to discard the victims far from where he'd abducted them. Now, Dr. Albert uh, Rosenstein, um, forensic psychologist, predicted their killer was an intelligent sex offender in his late 20s or early 30s. He'd spent time in a psychiatric facility, was abused as a child, and that while bisexual, the killer. So this is um, this is someone the police went to before they knew who uh, you know before they arrested him. The killer had never become comfortable with this homosexual side of his personality, and is repulsed by his actions, as is evidenced by the gruesome mutilation of his victims. In at least twelve of the murders, he was assisted by one of four of his accomplices. Now, he kept newspaper reports of his crimes in a grisly scrapbook and would proudly show these off to at least one of his accomplices, Vernon Butts, and also an acquaintance, Everett Fraser, and would boast about all the murders he'd committed. Now, when he was talking about these to other acquaintances, he would claim that this guy is giving good gays like us a bad name. 
Now, following the media coverage, he told his co-workers at Dependable Drive Away, saying, he did it again. I found another one, a strangler victim. People thought he was obsessed by these crimes as he would go daily to Orange County to buy newspapers, seemingly obsessed by the murders. The first known murder for which he was charged was that of 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren. He was last seen leaving his parents' house in Reseda at around 10.50am on May the 28th, 1979. Just before he went missing, he had told his friends that he was meeting a man at a skate park who was going to take photos of him for a skateboarding magazine. I mean, that's the way. I mean, that gets kids' attention. That's a ruse, though, yeah. as well. It gets, yeah. you know, it gets women's attention. How many, like, murder uh, Models. Well, uh, make uh, your model. Yeah, oh, make your model, let's take some photos. And they've never been seen again. They've gone off to meet a photographer and never been seen again. Yeah. The same day... Thomas's body was found in Angara and he was dressed only in t-shirts and socks and at the following autopsy it was found that he had been emasculated. Now I wasn't I've used this word as kind yeah. of like I've used this word as a word that describes removing the maleness from a man yeah. like total emasculation. Yeah. So when I looked it up it's actually a word used to describe the removal of both the penis and the testicles whereas castration is just the removal of the testicles. Good to know. So, Thomas had extensive bludgeoning to his face and head by an object like a tire jack handle and had multiple skull fractures. He'd also been slashed across the throat and stabbed many times in the chest and stomach and then strangled to death. His underwear jeans and severed testicles, which had several bite marks, were found strewn in a field near to where the body was found. That is just, that is bite marks. Heartbreaking, isn't it? That poor little boy. Yeah. An expert later thought that Bonnie's brutality was likely an attempt to kill his homosexual attraction to Thomas, trying to silence his desires with each stab. Bonnie was assisted in these mur- in this murder at, by books, and he was actually suspected of accompanying Bonnie on at least eight of his other murders. A few months later, on the 4th of August, 1979, Bonin drove from Silverado Canyon to a drive-in movie theatre to spend some time with Butts in Westminster. Bonin quickly suggested that they pick up a teenage hitchhiker to rape and murder. Butts was happy to do this. They picked up 17-year-old Shelton and paid $400 for his sexual services. Shortly after Mark left his home to walk for the short distance to the movies near Beach Boulevard, According to Bonin, he masturbated Mark Shelton before squeezing his genitals hard, which caused him to scream out in pain. Bonin drove him to Canyon Cajon Pass in San Bernardino County and but entertained Mark with magic tricks before going on to orally raping him. When they, when they got to the abandoned gas station, Bonin packed up and raped Mark. Getting angry with Mark because he was scared and resisting, he started beating him kneeing him in the face over and over until Mark lost consciousness. Mark was then strangled twice over a 15-minute period with Butts help him. They violated him with foreign objects like sticks, which caused his body to go into a state of shock that proved to be fatal. They then discarded his body beside a gravel road in Cajon Pass of San Bernardino County. The following day, on the 5th of August 1979, Bonin and Butts came across 17-year-old West German student Marcus Grabs um, at some point between 6 and 10pm while he was trying to hitchhike from the Pacific Coast Highway. Now, again, according to Bonin, he engaged in consensual intercourse with Marcus, who agreed to be bound with lengths of cords and ignition wire. Now, I doubt that. Who, would, who on earth would agree to be bound up in a van by a, by a stranger, voluntarily. Uh, Bonin grabbed a book knife and threatened Marcus as Butts drove towards Bonin's house uh, where the boy was sodomised and beaten. So when Bonin started squeezing his genitals during the rape, Marcus reportedly broke loose and punched Bonin. So Bonin stabbed him for an extensive period. Now, Marcus was partially strangled and found to have been stabbed a total of 77 times which, again, experts thought was an attempt to kill his homosexuality. His new body was dumped in Malibu Creek, close to Las Virginas, Virginus, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, the genes, 
uh, Canyon Road. The body was discovered around 6 a.m. the next day. Um, an officer for the investigation likening the level of injuries to that of a rabid dog attack that was dog attack was unable to, to determine when to cease biting. It's like an animal attack almost. Yeah. A few days later, on the 9th of August, 1979, Bonin was again detained for molesting a 17-year-old boy in the coastal community of Dana Point. At this, uh, as this violated the conditions of his parole, it should have resulted in Bonin being returned to prison. However, due to an administration error prior to his scheduled court date, it meant that he was in fact released. So on the 13th of August, which was only four days after being arrested for molesting a 17-year-old child, Fraser drove to collect Bonin from the Orange County Jail, where he was incarcerated. He later recollected that as he drove Bonin home, Bonin then made a statement, which at the time Fraser had taken to be an expression of remorse, no one going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. He then went on to continue his horrific murder spree. Now, he didn't bother to turn up for his court appointment. During that time, he'd actually moved back in with his parents again. And he started to get a reputation as a child molester in the neighbourhood, as he was in the habit of inviting young boys back to his home. Sometimes his brother and mother were also there using free alcohol and looking at uh, pornography with them. Now, some neighbours would later recall frequently seeing boys accompanying Bonin into the house and they would later hear screaming and crying inside. Now, his mother and brother always maintained they never, uh, they were never aware of Bonin's abuse of the boys. We're going to leave that there today. We are, this is going to be, this is part one of a two-parter because there is, it's actually so much information here and I think we've actually had our fill of the horror of it today and what, what we'll do is we'll call part two and we will that, that, load that in the next week. So thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And we now, I think we all deserve to maybe get a bit of fresh air and, and try and get that, the images and the place. awful, yeah, have, think happy thoughts here. So it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank okay, you bye. So much for listening. bye. Bye.